Welcome to The Real 7 Show. As always, this podcast will be completely raw, unfiltered, and uncensored. Today, I sit down and talk with Big John. Big John is the creator of the Outlaw Blueprint, the owner of Big John Fit, and the owner of Big John's Macro Snacks. We talk about how to get yourself fit, masculinity, and overcoming addiction. So if this is something that you'd like to listen to, then buckle up, because here we go. I'm Big John. I'm from Los Angeles County. I'm a fitness coach and a beef jerky CEO. And I went through a major life transformation in the last year and a half. Went from 25% body fat all the way down to single digits. And in the process, got sucked up in personal development, mindset training, fitness, nutrition, and essentially became my own entrepreneur. And so now I run a business where I'm changing people's lives around the world with my program, teaching them the exact same skills that I learned to help me solve my obesity problem, to solve issues with PTSD, to solve issues with just life in general, anger issues, a lot of personal demons. And once I laser focused into a program like this, it totally changed my life and literally turned off the TV, started treating my kids better started living a much more productive life, eating healthy, counting my macros, which a lot of people don't know about that program, but that's something I teach on a regular basis. And obviously yeah. including fitness. And the, one of the biggest changes I made is my day starts at 3 a.m. And I start working out immediately. And from there, I like to do what we call stacking wins. So I stack wins. It's a method of positive daily habits and I try to do as many of them throughout the day. So I'm setting the tone every morning as a winner. And when you start your day off as a winner, it's pretty hard to become a loser if you're stacking up the right activities on top of each other. So that's my goal on a daily basis. And I deliver that message through social media to inspire people, to help people, and really just give people an alternative to the way most men are living these days, mm. showing men that there, you don't have to watch a football game to be the toughest guy in the room. You can pick up a book once in a while and it's not going to hurt you. And you don't have to you know, basically relinquish your power to mm -hmm. comfort in the form of drugs and alcohol and terrible food. Mm. And that's a that's a solid introduction in so many ways, dude. Uh, for one, you and I are going to crush the fucking masculinity topic today because that's dude. It's such a big it's a big, vast topic that really requires all walks of life. So everybody that I get on here who's down to talk about masculinity, uh, we try to always hit it from different angles. Because, dude, your message may help, you know, one person. That one person goes and helps two people. Those two people help four people. And then it all trickles back to, well, where'd you hear it? Well, I heard it from Big John. You're sitting on this podcast speaking about something, right? So let's go backwards. Let's go backwards into Big John's life. So as a kid... What were the things you did? What what were you into? What kind of led you on your journey of manhood today? So, uh, you know, I came from a, I call it a broken home, right? Parents divorced when I was five. Mm. My mom and dad were, were relatively young when they had me. 
and they were party animals, I guess, at that point. And so alcohol and relationships didn't work out very long. Mm. And so ultimately, when my parents divorced, I was, you know, still a young kid. And I'm now living in two different homes. My mom remarried uh, in a very short amount of time. And I had a stepdad for the next five years from the age of seven to 12. And he was an interesting guy. I spent a lot of, you know, my time with him as opposed to my biological dad, my real dad, because my dad had started a business an hour and a half away from where I was living. So my stepdad kind of became that quasi father figure, but I would say that it wasn't the best scenario for me because he was, he had a jealousy issue between me and my mom. Mm. And so it, it, it led itself into, um, he didn't beat the crap out of me, but he was definitely rougher on me than I would treat my son, my sons. And I experienced um, maybe psychological trauma, a little bit of physical trauma, sure. but ultimately, sure. you know, that relationship ended when I was 12. So now I'm 12 years old. I see two divorces. I'm an only child. And a lot of my relationships were with my friends and then ultimately became my teammates. And one of the first places that I found a lot of comfort and a lot of freedom to be myself was on the football field. And I was very fortunate that my first linebacker coach, you know, I'm one of those guys, I'm a linebacker, right? So my very first coach, his name was Coach Dean, and he was straight out of boot camp. He had played football at the high school that I would later attend. But he was about 18, 19 years old at the time I was 12. He came out of boot camp and he became my mentor. And whenever I was standing around, I wasn't standing around long because he had me doing push-ups. And I would be the only guy on the team doing them. And so he groomed me from a young age to really be the leader of the team and to kind of be that pit bull. You know, I was that dog, uh, as, as a middle linebacker should be, back in my generation when you can actually tackle people. And uh, use your head to, to, to <laughs> but it sounds crazy. But um, I mean, I grew up in that generation where, you know, like I said, you could actually hit somebody as hard as you wanted and they won't throw a flag. Nowadays, the game has completely changed. But ultimately, uh, you know, Coach Dean with a giant dip in his mouth and spitting and wearing the camouflage shorts and the army boots. That was my first introduction into, to, you know, masculinity or being a man or like, oh, I want to be like that guy. Mm. And uh, and so then football really started to dominate my life. And it wasn't short after that uh, the weight room came pretty – basically by the time I was 13, I was already starting to hit the gym. And a lot of that was to combat a lot of the teasing. I was a, I was a chunky kid. Right? I, was a, I was a bigger – I wasn't morbidly obese. But there were years when I couldn't make weight to be on the football team. So I was bigger. And you know how kids are. I mean, you're going to get, you know, yeah, basically the body that I had, you know, in my late, you know, 30s, early, 40, you know, basically up until 40 years old was the same body I had when I was 10, 11, 12. And so the weight room was was always that sanctuary where I could work on myself. And I'm one of those kind of guys where I really like to train alone. So mm-hmm. in a way, it became a meditative place. And I, I just started working on my body. And as puberty kicked in, well, so did my physical strength. And then ultimately, I was basically the strongest guy in my high school for about two or three years. You know, I was benching 300 pounds as a freshman in high school already. And I was six days a week and I was all in. And and I didn't look back until uh, I got a little bit older, you know. Mm. 
So as you start to come into, I guess, getting out of high school, so you're you're what coming out of high school, like 17, 18, kind of starting to get introduced to the world. How does that look for you? Like, what what is your what's your motivations at that point? Where are you mentally? What are you finding interest in? So at, at another interesting time, because the last game of my senior year, I broke my leg on the field. And so I was actually carted off the field by an ambulance had surgery. They put a rod in my leg. And up until that point, I thought I was going to be playing football at some university somewhere. I was all in thinking I'm going to be a professional football player, eat, sleep, breathe football. Wasn't really into drugs and alcohol. Wasn't really into going out. I mean, there were many, many nights when it would be a holiday or a party and I would be in the gym. I was all in. And then that, that fateful game was, you know, like I said, snapped my leg, basically broke both bones of my lower leg on the field. And I tell people it was such a bad injury that the opposing team, which was our rivals, they came over and they're looking down at me and they're like, oh, fuck, bro, don't move, don't move. Because my leg was straight, but my foot was on its side. And you could mm-hmm. see like the bone was broken. It actually broke into my calf muscle and tore a little bit of the calf muscle. Mm. So I went from there straight to the hospital. Like I said, they put a what they call a tibial nail. So it was a titanium rod that they hammered in through my knee. So I have a scar that looks like I had an ACL repair. Mm. They hammered that in there. And so now my, you know, the remainder of my senior year, I'm on crutches. I had a couple surgeries because of the injury. Ultimately I had the the rod removed. So once that was taken out, um, that gave me the ability to play again. Cause they had told me initially I would never play football. again. And so now I'm entering, you know, freshman year of college as a football player and they have a process where they call it a gray shirt. So you can attend the university. You're a member of the football team, but your clock doesn't start in terms of your four years of athletic uh, eligibility. And so that's what I did. So I basically made a decision that at a minimum, I was going to be at a university for five years because now that first year is quote unquote, doesn't count. It counts academically, but it didn't count athletically. But that led to a lot of bouncing around from junior colleges. And ultimately, I was down in San Diego for a little bit, chasing my girlfriend at the time. That didn't work out. And I'm from um, an area of Southern California called Ventura County. And so I went back to Ventura County, went back to my familiar surroundings, and ended up ultimately joining a junior college football team in the city of Park. And played two years there. And then from there, I ended up in the football politic tornado. And long story short, ended up walking on to a Division three school. Um, by the time, it, now this is like maybe six years into college. <laughs> so I took another year off. Like it was just getting, I basically was living this um, quote unquote, very irresponsible life. And because I had a successful father, I was I was able to do things that most uh, kids without that financial backing sure. wouldn't be able to do. And so I, I basically took the slow train, but ultimately ended up playing two years of college football at the Division three level. And I attended a university in Orange County um, in the city of Orange called Chapman University. And again, played middle linebacker there. And I was just fortunate that um, I led the team in tackles two years, you know, each year that I was there. And ultimately, 
that all culminated with me partying my ass off for, for two years to the point where I got kicked out of school. So I got kicked out of school and drugs and alcohol played a big part of that. And um, I ended up getting my first DUI like two months after I got kicked out of college. And I was three times the legal limit, passed out on the steering wheel of my truck at four in the morning. And I was awakened by the paramedics who were called because a um, bystander had driven by and they were concerned. So they wanted to do a welfare check. And there I was, you know, passed out on the steering wheel. And I didn't, re I don't remember this part, but it was told to me that I ended up getting like in a, in a brawl with the, <laughs> with the ambulance drivers, because I guess they woke me up out of a stupor, you know, I'm in like a drunk coma at that point. And uh, so they put me out of the truck and I'm trying to wrestle with them and fight them. And then lo and behold, I get arrested and uh, spend the night in the drunk tank. And that was, uh, that was the start of another two and a half years of chaos. Mm. And I think I was, after that first DUI, I tried to be sober for about six or seven weeks. And then once that ripcord was pulled, I drank all the way into my second DUI. And both times I had a DUI, I was three times the, le the legal limit on both of them. So I was 0.24 alcohol percentage on both. Now the second time was even worse. And this was two and a half years later. So I'm still, I'm, at the time I was 26 years old. And this time I was drinking by myself. And I, it was Christmas day. It was December 26th of 2008. And I was drinking. I had a buddy came over for a little bit and he left. And I proceeded to drink until about three o'clock in the morning. And then, like every good alcoholic, the munchies kick in. And I had driven drunk hundreds of times because, uh, you know, how it goes. Unless you really want to quit or you really experience a massive – and even getting a DUI wasn't enough for me. So I ended up drinking so much that I just – hey, rational decisions go out the window. So I jumped behind the, the seat of my truck, and I was headed for the nearest fast food restaurant. Didn't make it to that fast food restaurant. Ended up nailing a tree. I don't remember all the details other than I totaled my truck into that tree. And I remember I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So my body went into the dash. And at the time, I think I was probably about 245, 250 pounds. And I'm, I'm five foot 11. So I tell everyone I'm, I'm the only big John I know that's not over six feet tall. And I never gave myself that nickname. But I ended up smashing my entire body into the dash and destroyed the inside of the truck. The truck was pinned against the tree, but it was still running. So I jumped out of the truck and I was trying to physically push it. I was trying to put it in reverse. The wheels are spinning. It's, you know, three in the morning on Christmas, the you know, following day after Christmas, there's nobody out there. So I sit back in the seat. I'm pissed drunk. And the next thing I remember, I see the reflection of blue and red lights coming down the street. And it was a uh, police officer who was following his wife home from her job as a nurse at a hospital mm -hmm. down the street. And he came up, he just came upon me by chance and pulls up, hey, well, what's going on? And I didn't even try to come up with like some creative excuse or told, hey bro, I'm fucking hammered and uh, I need your help. And so that's what happened. He ended up taking me to a, a holding cell. Let me call my girlfriend at the time within like two, three hours. And that was the last time I ever drank. 
I know I haven't had a drop of alcohol since. So it seems like that was like the uh, the true pivotal moment in your life, and and that that seemed to obviously like what was it like sitting in that that holding tank and having to call her again? Like fuck, here I am again. Like did you finally reach that rock bottom to where you said fuck, man? Like something's got to give here. Or did you continue your tear for a while? No, I mean at that point I was so broken that um, the drinking was was a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't. When you're drinking by yourself to that level, you know, you it's not about being the party guy. It's a dark place. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh I mean, calling her was 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 easy in a sense cuz she was older. Mm. Um sure. and she wasn't judgmental, so she wasn't she she made that part easy. The the hardest conversation I had was with my dad afterwards. But yeah. I was um I was so ready for the change cuz I was just so <clears throat> I was the kind of alcoholic I tell everyone I was so good at drinking that I surrounded myself with other people that had the same problem. So that way I didn't have an issue. And it got to the point, like I said, where it was so dark and I was just so unhappy with so many things that the the change had to happen. And that was why I hadn't had to, you know, to this day coming up on 15 years, haven't had a drop of alcohol since Mm. I, I just came to that realization. It wasn't for me. And as, as fun as some nights could be or as sure. dark as some nights could be. And a lot of that darkness, you're going to carry alone. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, that's not something that you're putting on a billboard for everybody in town yes. to see, but, you know, those dark, <laughs> those dark places are places that you're going to spend a lot of time with your thoughts. And it was, um, it was definitely a pivotal moment because at that point in my life, I was under the impression that I wasn't going to live that much longer anyway because of the mm. way I conducted myself. And and I had pretty much run off all the friends that I had. <laughs> and even the ones that drank with me didn't want to drink with me anymore because I could be so reckless or careless or, you know, just make a lot of poor decisions. And it, I think it was at that point, you know, you're 26 years old, like when the fuck are you going to grow up? You know? Yeah. And, and um, but ultimately it was the best decision I ever made because I, I actually got my shit together, you know, and, um, but it, it didn't happen overnight. And I had to deal with a lot of legal consequences after that. Oh yeah. Uh, financial consequences, but it also was a, a great learning lesson. Sure. You know, it, it's another area that I can bring value to other people's lives. Cause I've been there and I've done that. <clears throat> and I sat through the meetings and I've ridden the bus and I've blown into that fucking breathalyzer and I've experienced essentially at that point for me was like a rock bottom. And um, like I said, the testament to that is that still haven't had a drop of alcohol since, you know? Yeah. So now there's this, uh, okay. So this has happened to you now, you know, you've kind of hit your metaphorical rock, or I guess your, your actual rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where do you, where do you go from there? Like, how does, how does somebody go from being, you know, super reckless, um, not caring about their physical health. Like you, we all know what drinking does, man. There's not a single person. There's not one motherfucker. I know that drinks a lot that is in great health. You know what I mean? You see them start to dwindle away. They have, you know, that, that bit of pudge around them that's done. And then they get the alcoholic nose and their blood pressure is high as fuck. Their face is always glowing. So it's like you being in the industry that you're in now and building what you're building and it, it kind of moving so quickly, you're, but you're very quickly becoming a, um, you know, one of the figures of of fitness online. So 
how does this change for you now? Like where does, how does the direction get you back to physical fitness after going to your rock bottom? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously being a former athlete, you know, the gym again, you know, I started such a young age. So even at that point, I had 13 years of experience. Sure. And yeah. so when I got sober, now all the people I surrounded myself with were, <laughs> I wouldn't say they're of no use to me, but we were on two different paths. None of them thought that I had a problem even after two DUIs. You know, I was, again, surrounding myself with the right group of people. God, I didn't have a problem. So even after two DUIs and totaling my truck into a tree and ultimately I, I landed on house arrest and I was on probation and like oh, cost me you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Ultimately, I didn't have anyone to hang out with anymore. So I entered into the, you know, the rooms of, of the program, you know, 12 step groups. And once you're there, now you have a supplemental social life, but it revolves around, you know, essentially other alcoholics like yourself. Yeah. And yeah. So I was able to make some connections there and, and, and you learn a lot in those rooms, but more importantly, you learn a lot about yourself. And as it relates to what I'm doing now, a lot of people mm -hmm. are still, maybe ignorant about how alcohol affects their body from a physical standpoint in terms of your metabolism and what it does to you with your hormones and the chemicals in your body. Yeah. And that's a yeah. conversation I have with a lot of people because a lot of people want to lose weight, but a lot of people don't want to give up alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I, there's a strategy for it for people that have to drink. So I'll, I'll entertain that strategy with certain people. But ultimately, the program that I've created, it lends itself to a lot of people quitting drinking because they become so focused on what we're doing. Good. And when you treat your body with the right amount of exercise and the right amount of macronutrients, the last thing you're looking for is poison out of a 12-ounce can or bottle. <clears throat> Not to mention, one of the biggest things I try to teach people is that when you ingest alcohol, it's not the calories that are going to make you overweight or cause problems with your metabolism. It's the alcohol itself. Mm -hmm. So as you ingest alcohol, you're now increasing your cortisol levels. You're going to have fluid retention. It's a stress on the body. And it specifically targets the metabolism of fat and carbohydrates. So it doesn't allow the proper breakdown. So like the symptoms that you're describing with the, you know, the bulbous nose or some guys will even get like a hump in their back. Or they're starting to develop fatty tissue around the vital organs, the neck, uh, the midsection. That's all a cortisol response that's triggered by excess alcohol. And we all know it's 2023. There's only really two drugs that you can die from in a withdrawal. One of them is anything in that opiate heroin family. And the other one's alcohol. And that just shows you how dangerous it can be. But a lot of people can't give it up. So it becomes a catch-22 in the, in the fitness world. Part of my transformation is I ballooned all the way up to 315 pounds. Ooh, it's a big motherfucker, dude. Especially at five foot eleven. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big dude. So at 315 pounds, I'm experiencing the world in a completely different manner. Sure, and yeah. My relationship with food is on a whole nother level. And in a lot of ways, the food can become an addiction. The alcohol and drugs were obviously an addiction for me. Yep. Well, now this program has filled that void. 
in my personal opinion, people with addictions or addictive behavior, it never leaves you. It's always going to be with you. So how do we channel that into something positive? And that's where a program like I operate, <clears throat> that's where it takes over for me. And it's basically what I've become addicted to is the dopamine that I'm getting from all the positive daily habits that I do. Mm. Right? So I've replaced the the pleasure or whatever, you know, chemical receptors that I was getting from drugs and alcohol and food with now workouts and being uncomfortable. So you actually can experience a dopamine increase when you successfully accomplish something that's uncomfortable and you get through yeah. it. Right. So that's kind of the premise of the positive daily habits and then doing things that are strenuous or involve some kind of physical activity. And for me, a big part of it, I do morning burpees. Mm. So when I wake up in the morning, within five to 10 minutes of waking up, I do one set of 50 burpees, just one set from zero to 50 in one shot. And that for me has become like my morning meditation. It's also the first daily habit that I stack in a positive win. And I would say that a large majority of the time, I have no interest in fucking doing those burpees. Like either mm -hmm. my body's hurting, I'm just not in the mood. Sometimes I'm on two hours of sleep. I, I live a crazy schedule now. But every time I finish those burpees, I feel like a fucking winner every single fucking time. And so for me, that's been one of the biggest benefits of this program to replace the drugs and alcohol, to supplement all that dopamine or all those feelings that I was getting from that artificial, you know, stimulus, essentially. Yeah. So, so, so with the, with the burpees, I just want to talk about that. Cause that's, I guess, quickly becoming your, your, your thing, um, which is cool, man. Like every quote unquote influencer, which you're going to, you're going to see, man, you're, uh, you're going to blow up quickly in, in this industry. Um, and there's many reasons for that, but the burpees are, are, are very quickly going to become your staple. Um, but with the burpees, like e even on like no sleep. So w where did that start? Because when I first saw them there, they are straight up, uh, fuck, what do they call them in there? It's like a, it's a very prison style burpee. Um, I can't remember what the fuck they program. So whenever, whenever they're in there running their program, it's, identical to what you're doing so what is it about the burpee dude you could do body squats you could just do push-ups you could do jumping jacks what is it about the burpees so to rewind a little bit when i went down my fitness path i hired a mentor i hired a coach <clears throat> and they had a you know prison background like mm -hmm. so i've been to jail but i've never been to prison and i had done burpees and in, in, you know in football the equivalent to a burpee is what we call an up down and it's has some similar characteristics, but it's not as methodical. It's a little bit more ballistic. And so I already had some experience, you know, with that calisthenic movement, but never being a prison guy myself, I wasn't forced to program. But the guys that I started listening to and the guys that ultimately became my mentors, they were from prison. And one of the things that attracted me to them was that they were able to live a very militant lifestyle that's very disciplined like I'm living now. And that's what I try to explain to people is that everything that I'm doing is a learned behavior. This is not something that I was born with necessarily. 
This is not something I've been doing for 10 years. But once I learned it, I saw the value of it. I've been doing it every single day for over a year without missing. And so that sacrifice to keep that streak alive is also a win in itself. Mm. But it, it establishes really what my purpose is and what I'm doing here. Because I'm able to live this life uh, and, and operate in a way that most people either don't want to, they don't believe that they can do it, or they're just not interested in it. And so that that burpee is really one of those exercises that, in my mind, kind of separates the men from the boys. And it's another activity where anybody can do it if they're physically capable. When obviously, I got to believe it or not, a good friend of mine. He's uh, uh, also in the fitness world. He doesn't even have a leg, right? He's missing a leg. He does burpees with one leg, right? Obviously, if you had one arm, you probably can't do burpees. But he has one leg. He still is able to do burpees. So it's really a mind over matter uh, exercise. And, and the reason why I, I don't do just you know squats or I don't do just push-ups, the burpees are harder, for one. Mm -hmm. It's a full-body exercise. And it's one of those at 50 reps per day, it's enough that I feel like a winner, but it's not so little that I feel like I didn't push myself enough. And I'm doing them somewhere in the neighborhood about three minutes or less. So it, it's a it's a ballistic, you know, time. You know, it's you know, it's not really aerobic per se. It borders on aerobic, but it's more anaerobic in my opinion. And I don't really get a sweat. You know, it, my heart rate is elevated. I'll breathe heavy for maybe a couple minutes afterwards, but for the most part, it's more mental than anything else. And that to me is why I do it because I want to build that mental strength. Because if you lined up anybody, there's nobody that loves doing, if somebody loves doing burpees, they're a sick motherfucker, right? Like how many guys, you know, went to prison. They're like, I'm never fucking doing those fucking things ever again. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So again, it's, um, you know, in the influencer world, in the social media world, it does lend itself to entertainment because of the size. You know, normally I'm anywhere, I'm walking around somewhere in between 220 and 240, anywhere in between. And so at, at my body size, you know, it's a, a relatively bigger guy who's doing these burpees. And I, I can do the ones where I'm coming off the ground and I, I can do, you know, sets where, I'm literally doing burpees for, you know, five, six minutes straight without stopping. I did one video where I went from zero to a hundred. I did that in about five minutes and 50 seconds. And that was at like three ten in the morning. And, you know, so when you're able to perform at that level, it's like, you're almost like a circus animal at that point. Right. Like that, yeah. that's what social media is. Like, how do you entertain people? How can you, how can you stand out? And, uh, you know, and, and so, the burpee videos are my most popular content. So that's another reason why um, I hold them near and dear. And then this is a total side of, you know, I, this is a byproduct of doing burpees. That I never anticipated, but my kids will jump in with me and do the burpees. And right now I have a five-year-old daughter and a six-year-old little boy and those, Hey dad, let's do burpees. And I actually have shot some content with them doing it. And they're laughing their asses off and they think it's the funniest thing ever. And, you know, if I'm teaching other parents how to do it, I tell my kids, stomach, toes, push-up, stomach, toes, push-up. And I'll say that cadence out loud while we're doing our burpees. And I would rather be known as the dad that does burpees 
than the dad that used to eat a pint of ice cream every night or the dad that couldn't get out of the buffet line or the dad that's always finishing all of our food off of our plate or the dad that's fucking hammered on Sundays watching football, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly happy being the dad that does burpees. So when, like, at what age was that mindset switch for you? Because you said that your DOI, your your last one or whatever, you were like 26, you said, in around that range. So then how old are you now? I'm 41. Okay, so there's that's a big gap, man. That's That's almost, what, almost 15 years. So at what point, like... In that giant block of time, like what was the 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 switch? Like, how were you living at that point? Were you still overweight but hitting the gym and, and trying to deal with alcohol? Were you focused on like you know your family business or like how did all that go? So, again, after getting sober and essentially losing my social circle, a lot of the guys I grew up with, and really just distancing myself from people that weren't engaged in in the, in the, the right kind of activities that I needed to be around ended up in that sober world for a little bit and ultimately it led into buying motorcycles and so at the age of 28 i got my first motorcycle for the street i had ridden dirt bikes from the age of 21 but at about 28 29 started getting into cruisers and actually my first motorcycle was a 2001 honda shadow that was cut chopped all the paint had been stripped off of it. It was welded into a hardtail. The seat on that thing was actually a metal pan. It had a dirt bike 19-inch rear tire, so like a knobby, you know, not street legal tire as a front wheel. And then it had a smooth tire in the rear. It was basically and it was lowered to the ground and slammed down with really low bars. It looked, if I could equate it to anything, it looked like something Mad Max would would be riding on. And that little Honda, the 600cc Honda, right, got more attention than any other bike I've ever owned in my life. Like, literally, people would pull up on the side of me and, you know, hey, what the hell is that thing? Because it was so abnormal to be riding something that looked like that. And I think maybe top speed was like 65, 70 miles an hour. But I never even put that thing up on the freeway because with a dirt bike front tire or, you know, rear tire as your front tire, it's not even – designed for that capability right and you know i'm living in southern california when you hit that freeway on a motorcycle you're taking your life into your hands anyway so you don't want to be riding on something that you don't feel very confident with especially on a you know like i said something like that but from there i very quickly matured into the harleys and my first harley was a 1994 sportster and i bought it off of a guy in burbank which is uh, just on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And he had had it from some other guy and he had a story behind it that it belonged to uh, an outlaw motorcycle club member. And, and that's how he got it. And so, you know, I was already, okay, that's kind of cool. It was $3,000. It was beat up, didn't run that good, but owning that Harley for me was a massive step because even though I was a football player and, you know, I was teased as a kid and whatever, I had always dreamt about having a motorcycle. There was just something about the sound and seeing the freedom. And, you know, back when I was a kid in California, they didn't have helmet laws. So, you know, mm-hmm. you see these guys riding down the street and no helmet on, hair flowing in the wind. You know, this I was born in 1982, so this is late 80s, right? So still, the guys, bikers still had long hair, some of them. 
And, uh, and so it was just, a, I always just gravitated towards that, that image of, of who that guy was, you know, and, and most times most bikers, you know, have that reputation where you don't want to mess with them or, you know, they're, they're a little rough around the edges, but they're also tough guys. And, and so I just, you know, being a middle linebacker and being an only child and being around a stepdad that used to toss me around, I think I started to, to really, um, you know, gravitate towards what that persona looked like. So when I get on that 1994 Sportster, I I felt like a badass, you know, like here I am, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, riding, riding a Harley for the first time, even though it was a tiny little $3,000 bike, it just, there was no way for me to compare that feeling to anything else I'd ever been on. And so that started a very interesting transition for me from the age of about 30 so, you know, essentially where I'm at now and basically became a fixture in the biker world. And, and so as I get down and, you know, I'm, I'm been sober the entire time. Right. So I, I, I'm in the biker world, but I don't drink and I'm engaged in all the positive stuff that I learned in sobriety. But ultimately when you're in that world, there's some expectation about how you want to look how you want to be perceived and the type of environments that you're going to be in. So then the weightlifting became a very big priority again. And the way I describe it is that if you were to walk into a, a biker bar or you're, you're involved in, a, in some kind of environment where um, it's mono a mono or, you know, for me, at least I always describe it. When men, when men are looking at each other, they're, they're, there's a running clock. There's a, the calculations are going on. Can I take this guy? How big is he? Does he look fast? Does he look like he has a fighting background? Does he look like he works out? So and that's the way I look at men, right? So if I'm doing that analysis, I'm going to assume that my quote-unquote opponent is also having that analysis. So my goal was to not be the smallest guy. And I didn't want to be necessarily the biggest guy because that brings its own problems. But as long as I was big enough that I wasn't the smallest, and I was big enough that I looked like I wasn't going to be a pushover. That's what I was trying to be. And so I went back into the weight room and started my biker like career off at about 250 pounds. And then slowly started to gain 275, 280, 285. But I'm doing a lot of working out, right? So it it doesn't, it's not as sloppy as you would think at 285 or even ultimately 315 pounds because even at 315 pounds i was benching over 500 so i was i was on a different um trajectory than most 315 pounders yep and i still spent i would say at the time at least four days a week in the weight room but my diet was absolute trash and because of some of the lifestyle experiences that i went through and not you know escaping to alcohol is when I started escaping to food. And it got to the point where I created a sick reward system in my own mind. And that reward system featured a pint of ice cream every single night. And I would add Oreos to that pint of ice cream. And then every single morning, I would reward myself for waking up for the day by going to Starbucks and getting the largest frappuccino that they made with a breakfast sandwich. 
And I did that so many times that I would literally be, it, it would be Christmas fucking day and I would be in that room. And I would go online and figure out to make sure like what Starbucks were even open on that day. That's how sick it got. But it was a 10 year daily habit. And um, so, yeah. So as much as I was in this unpredictable environment with a lot of things going on and understanding that I need to physically be a certain way, that food addiction and coping with, with life and, and in a lot of ways, just being an adult, had you know nothing to do with with motorcycles, just life in general. I found that you know food became my coping mechanism, and I took it to a whole nother level. Yeah, man, and food is one of those things that people don't understand is is the biggest most most accessible uh, addiction that they have, man. And I'm pretty fresh out of that, man. Like it wasn't too long ago. Um, like I've always been a, a, a bigger dude as in, dude, I'm just big boned. I'm dense as fuck. Even right now it's like, dude, I got a long way to go. Um, but, but I did a lot of power lifting for many, many, many years. Um, and, and now it kinds of, it, it lends itself to always being strong, but I've always looked in the mirror, like, fuck, you got the traps. I don't really even have to work shoulders much, just naturally, you know, and big legs. So I hold a lot of weight in my legs. I'm European, I'm fucking Portuguese. That's, you know, our lower bodies were just born with good genetics in our legs. Um, but even so, man, I let myself get out of control as well. It was what? Uh, what are we in? What is it? October now? So I would say maybe like March. I was sitting at like 243 on a daily. Just a lot of extra slop. You'd be surprised how much just water weight you fucking hold, you know. And uh, all I, I all I did legitimately was just stuck to 2,000 calories a day. And boom, 25 pounds gone just like that. Couple months, you look better, you feel better. My knees feel great, my joints feel good, inflammation's gone. Like, and I've been in the fitness realm for a long time. I know what I'm doing, but the one thing people really need to get through their heads is discipline. Look, you can have all the motivation you want. You can listen to all the motivational fucking videos. You can have your favorite music. You can have your routine. What happens when that breaks? What happens when you forget your headphones or your phone dies? What is that inside your head, inside of you, that's going to make it so you, with no other factors, can just say, fuck it, it needs to be done, right? So a lot of people lack that, and that's what that, I think that's really kind of what, uh, what kind of sold me on you was the fact that this just a very no bullshit approach to fitness. Like, look, man, end of the day, yeah, I get it, shit happens, but for the most part, stop bitching about it. Stop making excuses. Stop telling yourself all this shit and just do it, man. Because once you realize like, fuck, I'm so sick of looking in the mirror and, and looking like shit. I hate feeling like shit. I hate the fact that when it's time to get intimate with my partner, I just don't feel like it because my fucking endocrine system's on the floor, right? So when did you finally say, all right, man, it's time to do this fitness thing online? Because you're you're relatively new. Like I've been here for years in this social media space. And it's kind of like, well, who the fuck is this guy, right? So when did you realize, all right, this is the kind of life I'm going to live and I want to put on social media? What was that? What was the beginning to that like? So I had my mentor. And at this point, um, I started to see a lot of success. So on March 25th of 2022, mm. I was in between 265 and 270. And I had just come off of a plant-based diet that I started when the world went crazy, you know, basically two years prior. And I think a lot of people at that time with the world going crazy went one of two ways. They either got in better shape 
or they got in worse shape. And for me, I, I tried to go the healthy route. You know, I, I was listening to people and hearing things. Ultimately, I saw a Netflix documentary called Game Changers. And it was a weird story how that even came across. I'm, I'm a real big believer on everything happens for a reason. And there are signs and there's things that happen. And, and that, that energy, you know, exists around you for a purpose. So ultimately, I have a, a family member who's in the Navy. And he was stationed down in San Diego while his aircraft carrier was under repair. So I went down there with my dad to go golfing with him. So we're at, we're at lunch and we start talking and he's telling me, Hey, what, what, what do you want to eat? He's like, I'm just going to get a salad. I'm like looking over. I'm like, you fucking pussy. What the fuck are you talking about? Get a fucking sandwich like a man. Let's handle this. Right. Thinking that I know exactly how a man's supposed to eat. Right. He goes, no, he's like, uh, you know, me and all the guys in our little you know area of the boat, He's like, we all saw this documentary and none of us are eating meat anymore. Okay, well, let's go play golf. So that happens. And then we're about three days into the lockdown and I'm sitting, it's like 1.30 in the morning, I'm watching TV and I hear something crawling up in my ceiling. And I'd already been down that road before. The area of Southern California I live in, I mean, I got coyotes in my backyard. There's <clears throat> skunks running around and squirrels and rats and all kinds of possums and right. So I already knew that that sounded like a rat. So I called up an exterminator and this is like a 65 year old Mexican dude. That's been an exterminator for like 25 years. Comes over to the house. We're bullshitting. And he starts telling me that he's not eating meat. And I go, you don't tell me you saw that fucking doc. He goes, yeah, I just saw it last night. Like, Oh Jesus. Right. Like, here we go. This gotta be a sign. I got two guys like here they are. Lockdown's going to happen. The world's going crazy. And now we got two guys that are telling me that this documentary changed their lives and they don't eat meat. So I pop on the documentary. I watch it. Hey, fuck it. I'm not going to eat meat either. Let me see. It. Let's see where this goes. So I adopted that plant-based diet, like basically within like the, the first month of all the, the, the COVID bullshit. And I ran that program all the way up until 2022. And so there was good and bad experiencing that diet. One of them was it gave me a level of discipline just from staying away from some of the foods that I was used to eating. So obviously when you go plant-based, there's no more dairy. So that eliminated like regular pizzas. I wasn't doing ice cream anymore. I quickly found out that they do have plant-based ice cream. So I switched to that <laughs> in a short amount of time, but I, I stopped eating hamburgers and I stopped going to a lot of restaurants and I started to modify my diet for what I felt was a healthy alternative at that time. Well, come to find out that particular diet is definitely not the best thing for a man to be doing if you want to build muscle or if you want to just be a, like more of a man. It's also not good for people like myself who have quote unquote mental health issues because you enter into a depression pretty quickly, especially with the way that that diet's constructed. And then ultimately, not only did I lose weight initially, but because I have a problem with portion control and using food as an escape, I started to gain weight on a plant-based diet. And that blows people's mind. And how did you do that? I go, it's pretty simple. I started eating bowls of food with like the most ridiculous amount of tofu on top <clears throat> with rice and vegetables. And then I was using a honey mustard dressing over the top 
and probably adding four to 500 calories just in that dressing alone. And I was doing that three, four times a day. So even on a plant-based diet, I was consuming a ridiculous amount of calories and then compound that with the fact that all the gyms were closed. And so I wasn't able to stimulate myself the same way you can in that gym environment because at the time, everything was, you couldn't even find weights. And if you did, they were like $5 a pound or some ridiculous thing. And so, you know, it, it turned into, I was doing workouts with, with rubber bands and, you know, things I could find around the house, which re- really wasn't sufficient. And then you, you know, factor in that depression. I, I literally stopped working out for months and it wasn't until I started listening to some podcasts and, you know, hearing some other alternative opinions that I switched back to meat. So I switched back to meat and then hired that, hired my mentor, hired my coach and about a month later, and then as I had success, it was his idea to now start social media. Now, as a biker, I didn't have social media, and I didn't want social media. I, I, I was mentored in that world by gentlemen that didn't have that stuff ever. And it was a taboo uh, topic, depending on which kind of personalities you ask. So I always just stayed off, but it was expressed to me that I now have a story and I've now found a solution in my own life to now live a better life that I need. It's my obligation almost to now make a social media page so I can inspire others. Mm. And I had an incident occur six years ago that was a life and death incident. Essentially, long story short, I ended up getting shot through my neck. And so in the course of that happening, and this was, it was a wild scenario in general, because I only spent 24 hours in the hospital. I had no surgery, no pain pills, and no stitches, and walked out of the hospital the next day. And the doctors were in shock. Everybody was in shock. And I remember the particular hospital I was at, it was a training facility for college students. So I woke up the next day, I had a neck brace on. I got like 15 college students standing over me and they got lab coats on and they got, you know, they're holding notebooks and the doctor's talking to me. And he goes, hey, and he's like, bro, we never seen this before. He goes, you're a lucky motherfucker. He goes, you need to go buy a lotto ticket. Like, you, you know, you're saying that in jest. So I, when I got out of the hospital, I went and bought that lotto ticket and actually won $10 on that fucking ticket, you know? But, uh, and that, that's a true story, right? I really did win 10 bucks. But ultimately, I live with a lot of survivor's remorse because I should either be dead, I should be in a wheelchair, I should not be able to live a normal life. And initially, I had lost movement and function in my right arm, which I slowly got back. And I also had to teach myself how to work out again because the right side of my body when that bullet went in, in, in through my neck, I don't know if, you know, for people that have been shot, they understand this concept, but for people that haven't, I'll try to explain as that metal enters your body, it sends off a percussion wave. And what it does is it wipes out the nerve endings nearby. And so when that bullet came through my neck and it came out through the front right here, it literally took out all the nerve endings that were attached to my right arm. So even to this day, I have permanent numbness in my hand. And even dropping my hand down like this, um, I, I get pins and needles in my palm. And there's certain areas that I have just no feeling on my right side. 
but ultimately I can live a normal fucking life. I do 50 burpees every goddamn morning. So now not only do I have the survivor's remorse, but I'm trying to figure out why am I still here? And I know I got kids and I know, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of outside people looking in, they could identify 25 reasons why I'm still here, but I couldn't do it for myself. And it wasn't until I found this program and this way of living that brought me back to that 13, 14 year old, 15 year old version of myself, which ultimately was probably the happiest time of my life where I was laser focused on being a football player and working out almost daily. I just really gravitated to that. Like that, like they talk about all the time, when you find your purpose, it's something that you love to do. It's something that you would do if you didn't get paid. And it's something that you almost feel compelled to do on a daily basis. And for me, that's exactly how working out is. I lost sight of that for many years. But once I went down this road, transformed my body to where it's at now, it all came back. And ultimately, I identified that this is my purpose. This is what I'm here for. I was spared that day to provide inspiration for other people, to show them what's possible, to teach them the things that have essentially fixed a lot of the problems I was dealing with. And so here I am living this crazy fucking life that garners attention on social media, but I'm also tasked with the responsibility of having the appropriate message. And so that a lot of my messaging is how do you make yourself better in every aspect of your life? And it doesn't mean that I walk around on some fucking pedestal where I think I'm perfect or I'm better than anybody else. It just means that I'm committed to always being better. And so with that purpose and with, you know, I, I wouldn't call it like guilt, but with the acknowledgement that I've been given this ability, that provides a tremendous amount of discipline because it's not about me. It's not, it's never been about me when it's about me. I'm doing stupid shit, causing a lot of wreckage when it's about everybody else. And it's about trying to make the world better. Like I, I tell people all the time, we're all in this together. I'm, I'm battling the demons just like you're battling the demons. I'm battling the food fucking cravings just like you're battling the food cravings. There's days when I don't want to wake up and do it just like there's days when you don't want to wake up and do it. But I've also made the commitment to the universe that you've given me this opportunity. So I'm going to do everything in my power to wake up and fucking do it. And I don't know if it's going to be forever, but I did it today. And that's how I compartmentalize it in my own mind. And I already know that if I didn't live the way that I live, you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. So I have to acknowledge that my value in this space on social media and ultimately in life at the moment is to live this program and to show it to other people. And I, like I said, that's why I keep the streak alive. And that's why I sacrifice on one hour, two hours. Most, most days I sleep between four and five hours. If I'm lucky, five and six. So I would say I'm never fully recharged. I'm never fully rested. And I'm breaking all the rules and all the guidance from all the experts that tell you not to do this stuff. But I'm in the best shape of my life. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And every single day I look forward to waking up and doing it all over again. So I tell people, I don't know what to tell you at that point other than how could they even study someone like me? Because it's not like there's 250 
or you know, 25,000 versions of myself walking around where they could analyze us, test us, probe us, and figure out, okay, how the fuck did these assholes survive like this, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, I think that it's really, um, it's a really interesting, uh, you know, dynamic explaining that you, you have imposter syndrome, um, which is pretty fucking wild. Uh, I, I don't really know what that would be like. I guess it feels almost like, I don't know if you follow like CT Fletcher at all. One of the fucking OGs, one of the baddest motherfuckers to walk this planet, um but he's the same man he's like listen man every single day that i'm given at this point is like i've been given a new lease on life like i shouldn't even fucking be here you know and he said he's constantly just trying to find ways to benefit those around him and create something that people can constantly confide in regardless of you know how you feel like yeah you got problems cool you fat cool you black white asian uh construction worker nurse doesn't matter when you're fucking with the iron it all goes away. We're all the same when you're under the iron, man. All of us. And that's the one thing that I've always loved about the gym is making sure that, like, as you look around, you know, a lot of people that are big are like, fuck, I don't want to go there. I'm going to be embarrassed. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. In that environment, dude, everybody's looking at you in a way that's like, bro, fucking good for you. Like, yes, this is what I want to see. I want to see your big out of shape self coming in, making that commitment, you know what I mean? Sweating and, and making sure that you can provide yourself with the fruits of your labor. Because the one thing, bro, this is the one thing that the more you you work on yourself, that, that you constantly realize is that when you're in the gym, every single fucking result that you get is for you, by you. You did it, bro. No one could take it away from you. No one could ever say you're there because of me. Nah, man, it was your fucking sweat and tears that went into that. It was every, it was you saying, you know what? I'm not going to hit that drive through today. Instead, I'm just going to have a glass of water. It was you that decided to say, well, instead of the cheese strings, let's go with a healthier option, right? It was, and I think that that's what people need to confide in more is making sure that they recognize, yo, this is all you, bro. This is why fitness is like the number one thing, right? Like, oh, I want to look like this. I want to do, shut the fuck up. Just get in there. Just get in there and make it a stable thing. Worry about how you're going to look later, right? Right now, you just need to, that 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 habit development. Because I don't know about you, man, but without the gym, I don't know what the fuck to do. Like, my mental health relies on me getting to the gym. Or I just, I don't feel right. I feel uneasy. I feel like I just, you know, I my brain fog. I can't function right. It's just, as a man especially, dude. I think there's a part of us that needs, like today, I didn't do a long session because I had, you know, my son's basketball and I could have did this pod and then went after, but I'm like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to leave work two hours early. I'm going to get in there for an hour, crush it, take him to basketball. Then I literally walked in the door, grabbed my tea, fucking came right downstairs to do this. Like it's always a very go, go, go thing. But the point is, you know, I just went in there today and did just back and deadlifts. Wasn't a crazy complex workout, but I just needed to fucking rip weight off the floor for my sanity it's been a busy little while and this is my fuck yes you know what i mean <laughs> like i need to I need to get this out so in your program and i notice this is very different very different what exactly is the difference that you would say your program provides other than the typical cookie cutter program that you see out there well i don't really have too many people running the program as i run it yet mm. 
right? There's a few guys, and again, even in my own story, it was a transition to be where I'm at now. Because if you try to come out, you know, if you're, pick a number, 25%, 30% body fat, and I come at you with seven days a week, wake up at three o'clock in the morning, rack out 50 burpees, and essentially work out multiple times a day, you're going to quit within three days, maybe faster, right? You probably never signed up in the first place. So you have to walk people through a transition. Now, I've been working out for 28 years. So I've been around bodybuilding, powerlifting, and done tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of reps of all kinds of exercises. And people have been asking me for workout advice since I was a teenager just because of how strong I was. So I bring an understanding of how to develop the muscles properly from nothing to something. So I've got guys on my program that have lost 100 pounds. I've got guys on my program that have gained 25 pounds of muscle in a couple months and anywhere in between. And, you know, basically what it comes down to is that this is not just a diet and nutrition program because we're attacking so many other things. When you start analyzing your food at the level that we do, you're now implementing discipline that 99% of people will never, ever do in their life. So it starts right there with the food calculations and eating. So even though we start off people that want to lose weight in a caloric deficit, they're going to receive a specific macro number. And that specific macro number is going to tell you exactly how many grams of protein, fat, and carbohydrates to eat every single day. And I take it one step further. I tell you how many grams of fat, protein, carbohydrates to eat per meal. And then we talk about how many meals to eat. And then we talk about how to set up your day using technology around what you're going to eat. So as you do that, you're now creating a mindset shift that is going to align you into what we're doing. So it starts with the food. Then I expose people to my workout plans, which are based around hypertrophy training methods. So it's time under tension, and we're basically learning to exhaust the muscle in various ways. So that way you're seeing continual growth. And I also give my clients, as they progress through the program, all new workouts. So we're constantly changing up the stimulus on the muscle, and I'm exposing my clients to different ways of doing things with different pieces of equipment. So they're building a Rolodex in their own mind of all these exercises that they can do on their own when they're ready to leave my program so that when I'm not around. And a lot of guys talk about, when I tell my clients, you know, the same old cliche, I'm not here to give you fish. I'm here to teach you how to fish. So once they're there and once we got them dialed in with the diet, they're very comfortable with how the macro system works. Now their body's comfortable with the level of volume of training that I provide. Now we start to look at what else. And a big part of it in the next phase is that habit formation. And what I like to instill is kind of like what I do with my wake up. Find an activity in your life that you're going to do no matter what, and then attach a physical activity to it. So I've had clients, I tell them, you brush your teeth every night, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Every time you brush your teeth, I want you to give me 50 air squats. Attach 50 air squats to brushing your teeth. And boom, that becomes a habit formation. I've had clients that come home from work and they're like, I'm fucking tired, whatever. Okay, every time you hit that fucking garage door, 
do 50 push-ups before you walk in. Every single time. Attach your coming home from work to 50 fucking push-ups. For myself, I attach the burpees to my wake-up. Every time I wake up, boom, 50 burpees. And it's to the point where my body goes into autopilot. I, I made a post about it you know, a few months ago, but I went to bed and I thought my alarm clock went off. And I didn't even pay attention to the fact that it was only 1230 at night. Right? So I'm only on a couple hours of sleep because I usually go to bed around 10 o'clock. So I'm two and a half hours into my sleep. In my mind, the fucking alarm clock went off. So I, I, I have my little uniform I put on, which is basically gym shorts and Velcro vans. I do all my burpees with my shirt off. And that's part of an accountability trick because every time I'm on, I, so I film my burpees and I put them in my story for everyone to see on Instagram every day. So anybody that's been following me for over a year, they've seen me do burpees every goddamn morning since I started, right? But so now I have this habit attached to my wake up. So at 1230 at night, boom, I lace up, I get ready to go. I fucking start racking out burpees. When I'm done with my burpees, I go onto the treadmill. And this is now my second win of the morning. And I'll walk on an incline for 45 minutes. And I sit there and I edit my burpee video. I pare it down so I can put it on IG. So I'm, as I'm looking at the phone, I see in the corner, it says 1240. I'm like sitting there, I'm like scratching my head. Like, is this thing on military time? Like, what the fuck is going on with this thing? And I look, I'm like, oh, fuck, it's only 1240. Fuck, shut everything down. I can go back to sleep for a couple hours and wake up and go to the gym and, and you know, handle my normal routine. But that's where my body's at now, where instinctively it goes into it to the point where it's not even a habit anymore. It's almost like a bodily function. And so I try to teach that to my clients. Mm -hmm. And then obviously one of the biggest things that we can do for our mindset, for our personal development, and for really your well-being is to get back into books. And we're fortunate as a society, we got audible. And if you live in Southern California, every time you get in the fucking car, it's going to be 20 minutes minimum, even if you're going two miles down the street, because there's so many fucking people here. So at a minimum, you can crush out a couple books within a month just from driving around town and listening to Audible instead of listening to music. And so I instill a lot of book suggestions. Now, mind you, I don't even remember. I don't think I ever even read a book, even when I was playing football in college or any any other time in my academics. Yeah. Reading reading was not something that I was fond of, and I couldn't even tell you one book I ever finished up until I went down this new road. And now that's exclusively my entertainment at this point. The only time that I'm listening to music is when I'm in the gym. So there's a lot that goes into the program, and we do a group Zoom call. So I stay in regular contact with my clients, whether it's through a personal app that I operate or whether it's through a physical Zoom call. And that's an opportunity for me to be the quote unquote psychologist because I, I, I've i mentored people you know, with their own business startups. I've mentored people with relationships. I've mentored people with parenting, obviously the diet, nutrition, drug use. I've even mentored guys on how to ride motorcycles. I mean, you, you never know where it's going to take you, but ultimately whenever you're, you know, signing up for a program or looking for a coach, the value of that program is going to be the value of that person. And the more well-rounded they are, the more experience they have, the more things they've been through, well, obviously the better perspective they're going to be able to provide. And almost dying and taking a bullet through the next six years ago is one of the most 
you know, I'm, how, how much more valuable of a life perspective could you have to like, I know what real fear feels like. I know what that sound feels like. I know what that experience is to be like literally feeling the percussion of a fucking round coming at you, you know, and then being hit. And then ultimately the fallout that comes from that, the PTSD that you're going to deal with afterwards. And all of those things are addressed inside of a program like the one that I run. Because again, I go back to when, when you're stacking daily habits and you're focused on positivity and you're feeding your body with the right food and you're engaged in physical activity on a regular basis, it's impossible for you to feel like shit about yourself. It really is. Unless something just goes completely off the wire. But ultimately, you're going to be building up so much good chemicals inside your brain, all that dopamine and all that self-confidence. And when, like, for a guy like me to go into the shower every fucking time and put soap on my stomach and feel abs for the first time ever in my life and wanting to look like this since I was a chubby kid, you know, at the age of 10, 11, and 12, to have the body that I never thought I would have now at 41 years old is fucking mind blowing, but it's also a testament to what can be done here when you just change your mindset and just make that commitment, not only to yourself, but to everybody else in your life. And you did it all steroid free or are you doing TRT or anything? So I do take TRT. And I'm open about it. The, the reason sure. I take it, uh, I have done steroids in the past and I got to a point where my body stopped making it. So here's the funny thing about TRT is even when I was 315, I was on TRT. When I was 285, I was on TRT. When I was in the plant-based world, I was on TRT. And people that don't have experience with TRT think TRT is a magic bullet, and it's not. I wish it was because then I wouldn't have to work out so hard. But it, what it does essentially is bring me back to when I was maybe 18 years old. The other very positive benefit of TRT is that a lot of guys don't like go to the, like we don't go to the doctor unless you fucking get shot or you have something going on. Right. So the nice thing is you have to go through a blood test in order to, to get a prescription and you're going to go through multiple blood tests every year. So essentially you're going to give yourself a diagnostic checkup three, four times a year, depending on your doctor. To me, that's invaluable because they're able to tell you if you have cancer they're able to tell you if your organs aren't functioning properly. They're able to tell you how much sugar's in your bloodstream. They're able to tell you your hormone levels, obviously, and and basically guide you in a way that you you might deficient you might be deficient in some kind of vitamin or mineral. You would have no idea if you didn't do that blood test. And just by going for you know to the doctor for a checkup doesn't guarantee you a blood test. So there is a a, um, a medical benefit to going down the road of you know, an interest in TRT, the one major drawback that some people have a problem with, and I, I get it, is that it's permanent. It's not something that you're going to, you know, once you go on, you're on forever. Now, there's plenty of examples of high profile individuals who have been doing it for 20 years. And, you know, one of the most popular podcasts in the world, the host on there has been taking it for 20 years, right? Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Jeff Bezos, The Rock. Uh, Shannon Sharp. I mean, you know, pick pick a guy, pick a Stallone, Schwarzenegger. I mean, every every former bodybuilder you've ever seen. Every yeah. you know, I would say probably ninety percent of the the actors and and the athletes, they're all taking it. You know, and uh, 
And I tell people too, if I if I was a different if I, if I was a woman and I wanted to take testosterone because I wanted to be a man, they would throw a goddamn parade for me and everybody would be happy. I'd be getting high fives all the way down the street. But because <laughs> I'm a man and I want to take testosterone, it's this taboo subject and you're a monster and whatever else. When in actuality, it's just ignorance because there's hundreds of thousands of men that take testosterone and there's hundreds of thousands of men that you have no idea that they even take testosterone because unless you're working out on a regular basis and eating good, the testosterone is not going to transform your body the way that I've transformed mine. Yeah, man. And, and being around this, uh, you know, the, the, the health and fitness field for so long and around, you know, the, the powerlifting scene and the, the kind of bodybuilding scene and just my own research. I'm one of those people who does very extensive research on absolutely anything that I decide to, uh, you know, put my mind to. And when it comes to steroids, man, I know a lot of guys who took a fuckload of gear and I'm talking pushing the limits like a thousand megs of fucking tests a week, um, you know, shooting up twice because they're not using like enantates. They're using, you know, fucking shorter lasting esters, taking a shitload of DECA and Anadrol and D-Ball. And dude, they're just juiced and they look like shit. And it's, it's like, look, in, in one hand, testosterone can be something that... Uh, like if you are applying yourself, it's definitely going to be a game changer. You are going to get results, like results on your healings faster. You have a little bit more of a window as to what you can eat and kind of utilize, like especially in your situation, right? You're working out pretty well every single day. Not only that, but you're doing the burpees and like, you know, that, that TRT for you, in your case is coming in very handy because, man, your body's always trying to pair nutrients because it's always damaged, right? It's always trying to build and recover, build, recover. So in your case, it's like, yeah, fuck yeah, you can eat, you know, a little bit extra and it still go straight to fucking muscle building, right? Whereas other people like you could be on the TRT, but if you're not applying yourself, then you're not bothering to even if you're just going on your little morning walk and it's like, well, I've exercised, then like you're still going to look like shit. You know, your body wants to move. Your body wants to lift. It wants to fucking work. And at the end of the day, there's no easy way to make that happen. You can go take the carterine. You can take the, you know, whatever exercise in the pill. You can go hit Ozempic, but it's not going to fucking substitute hard work. There is no pill. There is no fucking substitute. There is nothing that will replace hard fucking work. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. But that hard work, man, the hard work you put in, your kids will learn. Right. The hard work you put in, your spouse will follow. The people around you will follow. The people you attract will be different. Right. Because now you're walking around. Look, when you look a certain way, for one, you command a certain level of respect right off the hop. People just respect you more. They don't want to know if you could fight or not. Right. They don't get they just don't want to find out. Right. So as a rule and and like I, I this kind of off topic a little bit, but for the men out there, there was a known child predator who had multiple cases of fucking with children who they did an interview with recently and they asked him what he would look for in his targets and beginning of the video i had to like put it down for a minute and just like fucking woosaw all right i'm gonna try to get through this right because you just you do don't want to hop to the screen and just take his fucking head off right leave the kids alone but I sat there listening to it and I found it very interesting uh, being a person who studies, you know, the psychology of individuals was that his answer was, well, the first thing that I would look for is who is the father? What does the father look like? I would analyze the father first. 
And it's like, hey, men, you, you, you getting the fucking message? The bell's going off in your head yet? I know that you could say, oh, well, looks aren't everything. It is when you have kids. It is in this world of fucking predators that are everywhere because they're not analyzing your kid. They're analyzing what you look like. Do you think somebody's going to look at you and, and and you know, say, oh, yeah, you know, that their kids would be a great idea? No, right? They're going to look at a person who's fucking jack tatted and, you know, just looks like he can handle himself and say, eh, let's just skip that mark. So not only are you doing yourself a favor, you're doing society a favor because anybody's kids who are with you are all, you know, they're, they're associated with you. So now predators are going away. And I know it seems like the extreme. But I don't know if everybody's paying attention to the time we're living in. Everything right now is fucking extreme, right? So not only are you doing this personal development, you're on this journey for yourself. You're making yourself look a certain way, feel a certain way. But you're also like one of the you know repercussions for your action is the fact that, well, now you're also that masculine protector. You're that masculine force that walks into a place. So this kind of was a roundabout way to get into the positivity. And I want to ask you this question because it's kind of been racking my brain a little bit last couple of days. And I feel like this is a real good conversation to kind of close out the podcast. You being in the world you're in, because it's it's no secret you're in the quote unquote biker world. How does that mesh with your constant push for positivity? I know a lot of people are going to find it very hard to say, well, how can you be in this biker world? Right. And yes, it's the biker world. People think you're not you're not like a weekend warrior delivering fucking, you know, toys to children, although yet there's drives and shit. But that's not the point. The point is, a lot of people would think that, OK, well, how can you be in this quote unquote world and be preaching positivity and bettering yourself? So have you gotten that from people uh, almost as a question? And if you haven't, you will. And how is it like, let's let's kill the stigma today um, about, you know, being in the biker world and the people that are in there. And how are they outside of that? Well, <clears throat> I think a lot of the negative interpretations of that world are from the last 60 years of activity. And the way the world was in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s is a lot different than it is today. And that's with every organization or every walk of life. There's been a, a maturation in that world, just like anything else. <clears throat> and believe it or not, the violence that comes with that world or the extracurricular activities that may or may not be illegal, it's not a club function in the sense of no club is out there and saying, this is what we do as a member of the club. It's just like law enforcement. It's just like the doctors and lawyers. It's just like, you know, this trade group or this union or whatever, the teachers union, there's the priests and the pastors in the religious circle. Just because one guy does something doesn't mean it's the that he represents everything about Christianity, that he represents everything about law enforcement, that he represents everything about being a teamster, that he represents everything about being a biker, that he represents everything about being a football player, that he represents everything about being a member of the LGBTQ whatever community, right? You're going to be associated with that group, but it doesn't mean that the group is forcing you to do these activities. So I volunteered and was a football coach at the Pop Warner level for many years. Here I am volunteering my time to coach the youth. 
And there's a lot of bikers that do that. There's a lot of law enforcement that do that. There's a lot of doctors and lawyers that do that. There's also doctors and lawyers that engage in illegal activity, whether it's selling pharmaceuticals on the side or whatever. Mm-hmm. In LA County, it's not a secret. The LA County Sheriff is running their own gang and they were called the Vikings and they had tattoos and they were doing a lot of extracurricular activities that they weren't supposed to be involved in. Yep. But it's not a blemish against the entire organization. And that's the same thing in the biker world. There's been plenty of raids and, you know, different times when they'll, they'll do an investigation and X amount of members of this organization or that organization, they end up getting arrested. Some of them get, some of them get prosecuted, but it's a very small percentage of the o- overall membership. Mm-hmm. And, and again, if the, if that world was structured in such a way that illegal activity was a prerequisite, those organizations wouldn't be there anymore. Mm-hmm. Because trust me, there's plenty of law enforcement officers that are chomping at the bit to make it all go away. But there's also law enforcement officers that wish that they could be a part of it. And you mm-hmm. listen to these guys. I mean, if you read some of the books of some of these you know, ATF agents or whoever who have come through the organizations as an undercover, they actually admit that the brotherhood that they felt inside of the clubs was better than any brotherhood that they've ever experienced. And they wish that they could have gone back to it. And in some cases, there were funerals or there were major life events where the members of the club showed up and and, and were there for support when all of these other quote unquote good guys or whatever that you want to call it were nowhere to be found. So I think, again, there's a stigma to it because it's a secret society in some ways. It's not for everybody. In a lot of ways, it's a, it's a throwback to the, the wild, wild west. And in my opinion, how men are really supposed to be Mm -hmm. society has kind of dumbed down what it's like to be a man and right. Especially in, in, in the United States with everybody gets a trophy and it's a bad thing if you're an alpha and you can't, you can't be loud and you can't do this and you can't, like you said, I have that intimidating look and people tell me that all the time. And then when they start talking to me and they change their tune, cause I I didn't realize that you're going to be so nice. Excuse me. But it's um, it's it's definitely it hasn't come up to answer your question in terms of like somebody pinpointing, like, how do you justify this? I will say also that members of that world are also looking for help and bikers specifically. Right. Of all of all the walks of life. And I talk about it sometimes. Being a biker, there's actually a way to modify your vest. So that if you gain weight, you don't have to buy a new one. And I don't know of another walk of life that has that, but they'll literally sell you extenders for the buttons, either in the front of your vest or on the side. So as you gain weight, you can just extend the side of your vest. So what a slap in the face. Not to mention, most bikers are going to restaurants or bars where they're in some of that negative activity, right? Drinking, eating food they're not supposed to. They're not really known for working out on a regular basis, you know, depending on their background, they might be, you know, just kind of a a junkyard dog. Some guys are multimillionaires that are too busy to even go to the gym. And a lot of guys got families and wives and kids. Cause again, it's not 1975 anymore. And especially over the last 15 years 
with the popularity of TV shows and the way social media operates now, the recruitment and the kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of walks of life that are attracted to that, to that lifestyle. Uh, they're not all hardened criminals. I'm, right. I don't consider a hardened criminal. No one's ever asked me to sell drugs. No one's ever asked me to sell guns. No one's ever asked me to do anything illegal, which is people don't believe that. But all I can tell you is if all of us were running around like a bunch of crazy maniacs, you would know, and we would all be sitting in prison together. And yeah. I met too many bikers that want to give up their bike to be in a cell for the rest of their life. Because ultimately all of us that join this lifestyle are doing it for the brotherhood. And, yeah. you know, like I'm not ashamed to say I love a grown man and I would, I would do anything for him or sure. put my life on the line for him because that's the commitment that I made. And it's a special commitment, which is why a lot of these guys in law enforcement that infiltrate it wish that they could be a part of it ultimately because they get to see it for real. And what's interesting is that uh, I would say the majority of the time, maybe even the high 90 percentage, when they do get a conviction on somebody, it's something for something so minor yep. or they threaten them within an inch of their life to now tell on everybody. So that way they can justify their own existence because most of the crimes that they're getting people on law enforcement has either entrapped them in, into that situation yep. or they monitored the situation and didn't prevent it from happening. And in, in a lot of cases, they were the instigator to try to get mm -hmm. everybody in trouble. So when that stuff ends up at trial or it ends up in the court system and the, and the evidence comes out, it ends up showing that the real criminal was really the representatives from whatever the law enforcement agency was, not the outlaws, believe it or not. Because, like I said, the function of an outlaw motorcycle club is not to commit crime. Right. Right. And again, man, a lot of it is just the way Hollywood has perceived this to be, because I mean, end of the day, if you look at and this goes for any fucking organization, like you said, it could be law enforcement. It could be, uh, you know, a big pharma. You know how many people big pharma gets rid of a year? Look at the Clintons. Let's let's start talking about the real gangsters, the fucking government. Let's start talking about the politicians, all the fucking these dude. These are the crooks. These are the gangsters. These are the hoodlums who fucking, you know, pull the strings. And basically what's happened is you guys have been one of the outlets that they just like to point the fucking finger at. Uh, when was the last time Nancy Pelosi did a toy drive. I'd love to know. Right. You know what I'm saying, though? Like this is these are the things that I encourage people to look at. And look, I just want to make this very, very clear for the audience who's going to hear this. I'm not fucking telling you that that going to become a, a biker, regardless, one percent or not. Um, I'm not telling you that it's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm telling you to do whatever the fuck feels right for you in your life. Um, but what I will always stick up for is the fact that people need to stop and and think about what they're being fed we're sitting you're talking right now like does does john sound like a fucking piece of shit murderer or does he sound like a guy who's positively trying to enforce you know positivity and good habits into people's lives and this is most of the the, the bikers that i've met dude there's bad apples fucking everywhere everywhere and i'll tell you there's a lot more bad apples in the uh street gang side of things that are highly violent and there's a lot of territory war. It's just a very different, it's a different world. And like I was, you know, you and I spoke about the truth is a lot of these things started from guys that came out of the military and just wanted to carry that brotherhood outside. Why? Well, because they've just been through fucking hell. 
you know, wherever they were. And then they come back into a society where they're not accepted. And, you know, do a lot of these guys fucking take their own lives, man. So how do they combat that? Well, the system doesn't provide them with the fucking opportunity. The government doesn't get two shits about the veterans. But who does? Well, veterans care about veterans. So what do they do? They said, well, I like motorcycles. You like motorcycles? Well, yeah. I mean, the brotherhood that I had there where this guy would die for me, I would die for him. Well, you're not going to find that everywhere. So they started riding bikes, man. And I don't know how how many you're whatever you're involved with, um, you know, how many people come from the military there. But I could tell you on many other sides, that's the case where a lot of it is just camaraderie, man, because masculinity as a fucking whole today, dude, is missing that chunk of itself. Look, end of the day, we're we're the ones who we got to slay dragons and then come home and play dad. We got to play husband. We got to play business owner. We got to play, you know, the, the the protector and the and then our wife makes our house a home. But, you know, we try to leave our bullshit at the door. But when shit hits the fan, like we're supposed to be the rock for everybody. But who's the rock for us? Well, it's the the the, the circle of men that you have that you can rely on around that that's going to provide that 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 brotherhood and that that feeling where masculinity can rely on masculinity and something that you said earlier was pretty crazy that you, you these days you even have to preface something like that and that's like oh you know i'm not i'm not ashamed to tell another man that i love him and it's like well we, sh we shouldn't be like you're, you're your brothers right like hey man love is that's the highest frequency that humans were given i don't give a fuck what walk of life you come from go tell somebody you hate them and then go get someone a hug and tell me what feels better. End of the day, man, when it's coming from another grown-ass man who can embrace you as like, yo, man, like, we're fucking brothers. And you know that you could look that man in his eye and be completely reliant on him. That's a huge thing. So, man, I've just been... I'm always trying to kill stigmas, but dude, because th that's that's what we need. And and honestly, I know too many people in, in your realm um, who are just good fucking men, dude. And I've met pieces of shit. We've all met pieces of shit. And I have yet to meet one. Um, so, you know, I just I, I think that you're right. There's there's this giant representation of masculinity and a lot of people want that. And that's the appeal uh, to the lifestyle. But, um, dude, I, I congratulate you with everything that you're able to do, man, um, you know, to be able to get people on the right track and have a bit of a hard ass approach while also having an approach where you you understand what addiction looks like. You understand what drinking looks like. So. I guess my last question for you is like, what, what's what's the plan for you moving forward? How do you see this going? Because you're starting to really blow up. It's starting to happen fast. So how do you plan on, uh, you know, maneuvering in this space? And where do you plan on being in the next, say, two years? Well, obviously, I'm going to try and keep doing what I do on my daily routine. That's first and foremost, because waking up, stacking the wins, keep eating my macros. <clears throat> we didn't talk about it too much, but I, I basically live in a caloric deficit six days a week. So mm -hmm. on purpose. I discipline myself and I still track my food. I still log my food. So that program will never change for me. I, I find so much value mentally, physically, even spiritually with, with just the, the food tracking alone. And obviously the workouts, it, it's something I have to do, whether it's the burpees or whether it's in the gym, because I need that self-regulation. I, I need to remind myself of what I'm capable of and I need to challenge myself. So it's going to spill over in, into where my business goes. So I have to scale in order to help more people. So I have a plan in place to do that. I have avenues 
where I'm going to be branching off with more social media. So that way I'm be able to hit different targets and different platforms. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but I have my, what I call big John's macro snacks. So that's my second business where I'm doing beef jerky. That's been a very, you know, valuable experience in itself because now I'm able to provide people with portable protein, which is one of the biggest things that men are looking for, especially if you have, you're a truck driver, you're, you know, work at a construction site or you don't have availability to, you know, whatever quote unquote comforts of a home. So you can bring that jerky with you. So I got that going. I can see myself being a motivational speaker, right? So I'm exploring those avenues, but I just keep reminding myself that this is what got me here. This is what I love doing. So I want to keep expanding on, on my program, keep sharing the message, keep growing my Instagram account, keep exposing people to this way of life. And I tell people it's me against the couch. It's me against the fast food industry. It's me against all the snacks and the sugar and the self doubt and the alcohol and the drugs. I mean, there's a million different things that, that I can go after that ultimately my goal is to make everybody that hears my message better because Again, it's learned behavior. If I can learn to do it at a guy that was morbidly obese and with a terrible diet and ultimately very unhappy with myself, then anybody can learn. And if the, if I can stay as disciplined as I have been to this point for the next two years, do you know how many people's lives I'll be able to change? Because yeah. I get messages every day and I'm only at a certain number of followers. I've been doing this for a certain number of times. As I keep doing it every single day, those numbers grow. And if we can get everybody on board, that might be the change that we need as men, as society. Because like you said, there's a lot of people that are gravitating towards a softer existence. When in actuality, men were on this planet and have been on this planet for hundreds of years to not be soft. We've never been the soft ones. We've always been the ones that did the hunting, did the gathering, killed the animals, protected our families. But a lot of guys are losing sight of that. So yeah. a guy like me, with the way I look, certain parts of society won't accept me. Certain parts of society will. But I think when people listen to the message and they see somebody who's a normal fucking dude who used to be over 300 pounds, who's now living a life in a completely different manner, that there's hope for every single one of us to be a better version of ourselves. And that doesn't mean that you need to be a fitness freak like I am and train seven days a week, but it means that you want to be a better example for everybody around you and bring that positive energy. And, you know, kind of go back to your last question, the members of the biker world, they want positivity too. They want to change their lives. They want to be around people that are upbringing. Nobody wants to be around a negative piece of shit. Nobody. I don't care what walk of life you're in. Like that's the most miserable kind of human being that you could spend time with. So everybody gravitates towards somebody that wants to build themselves up and everybody else around them. So if I can get more people to act like that, and this world was more about what you could give and less about what you could take, imagine where we would be as a society. Yeah, man, that's fucking huge, dude. That's huge. And uh, man, th these are the podcasts that I love to bring to people because we get to touch on so many different topics. And uh, man, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have been asking you to do a podcast just to kind of get into your story and who you are, man, because people only get to what people don't understand is you only see on social media what I allow you to see. And that's 
how it needs to be. Um, but in closing, man, I ask uh, every single guest this question. It's kind of a tradition on my podcast. But if there could be three things that you would tell the world right now that would change it, what would those three things be? Wake up early every single day, eat the proper macro-based diet, and expose yourself to physical activity as much as possible. And there you have it, man. That was probably one of the, the quickest responses. Usually people have to think about it. That was quick as fuck. But as you guys can see, Big John doesn't fuck around. <laughs> well, anyways, brother. Can I, I just uh, say one I, thing? Yeah, hey, yeah. Thank you so much. Of course, thank you. man. Of course, dude. But um, I just, again, I want you to plug everything that you have. What's your Instagram, macro, all that shit. Plug it up. So my main Instagram is Big John, B-I-G-J-O-H-N underscore fit that's my main fitness page i have big john's macro snacks i smell i spell snacks s-n-a-x so it's a little bit different but big john's macro snacks that's where you can find the jerky and we're going to be doing a couple of events uh, locally in southern california so i got a bike your kids event that i'm going to be doing uh, we're going to be doing an event in uh, phoenix arizona coming up so there's some things that if you guys can find me on instagram You'll definitely be plugged into there. But um, other than that, the only other thing to plug is this podcast because this podcast gave me an opportunity. I'm very, very appreciative. And uh, Eric, thank you for your time. Thank you for reaching out. It's been a great experience. And and ultimately, I, I'm indebted to you for a very long time. So, so thank you very much. Hey, brother. Ain't no debt here, man. I enjoy your content. And like I say, bringing value to people is what matters. So uh, I appreciate you. And uh, we'll definitely have you on again soon, brother. Thank you guys for tuning into my podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Real Seven Show. If you guys would like the video versions of the podcast, you can follow me on Rumble at The Seven Show or on Rockfin at Real Seven Show. Be sure when listening to leave a five star rating and review on the platform that you are listening on. Also, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. It helps the podcast grow more than you guys know. And until next time, this is The Real Seven Show.